Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. In uh, looking at this topic, uh, I want to examine uh, an aspect uh, or um, jump ahead, uh, where things are linked together as far as the seed and the fruit and the harvest. Obviously, these three are, are very closely linked together. And uh, the purpose of what we want to look at is to show and highlight the significance of what Christ, the seed, obviously, has accomplished. And what that practically means for us today, particularly living in the last days. This is really what we want to focus on. That's the objective. This is what we're aiming for. And uh, to really understand and appreciate also our high calling in light of that. We have a very, very high calling. I want to start with a verse that I want us to keep in mind throughout this uh, study in John 12, 23 and 24, Jesus speaking, he answered them saying, the hour has come that the son of man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. You know, I meditated on this verse a little bit. Very important principle Jesus points out here. Obviously, he was referring to who? Himself. He is this corn of wheat. He likens himself to a seed. And he says, so long as this seed does not die, it remains alone. Obviously, he was referring to his death. Only through his death can he then produce much fruit. If there is no seed that dies, there is no fruit. It's interesting, the words of Christ that uh, he said. It gives us immediately a bit of a perspective as to a before and after. We'll be examining that a little later. But I want us to keep this in the back of our minds because what Christ was referring to here is really the culmination of all the Old Testament prophecies and all the Old Testament predictions about this seed from the very beginning. I'll pick a few examples just to illustrate this particular point. You remember the very first prophecy given in the Old Testament was in Genesis 3.15. Christ himself says, I will put enmity between thee and, and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. This seed, of course, was referring to Christ who will one day take on Satan. And the promise is he will crush his head. And this promise of hope was what sustained Adam and Eve, and it was passed on from generation to generation. We don't truly understand or appreciate the earnest longing and expectation that the people of the Old Testament had to the fulfillment of these promises. See, we're living at a time when, when it's a, a done deal for us. We don't know what it's like to have lived before when everything was based and centered on that particular promise, this wonderful Wonderful hope. And of course, this promise was repeated throughout. We'll just highlight a few. Like I said, Genesis 22, 18, God repeated it to Abraham. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because thou hast obeyed my voice. Here's this promise again of this mysterious seed that was to come. Through this seed, everyone in the whole world will receive a blessing. God repeated this promise to Abraham. And so important is this promise that Paul comments on it in Galatians 3.8. He says, And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. This is the gospel, brothers and sisters. The gospel is this particular promise. Of all the promises 
that Abraham received from God, and he received quite a few, of all the promises, the central and most important promise, according to Paul, that he says, listen, this is the whole gospel, is this promise of the seed. The seed, a very, very important biblical uh, title and principle relating to Christ, to the seed. Of course, I think we all know when Paul, and Paul spells it out, when, when God told Abraham about the seed, he didn't say seeds as of many, but one, which is Christ. This is who we're talking about. And this is what Christ what had in mind when he gave this wonderful verse. He said, listen, except this corn of wheat fall and die, it abides alone. But if it dies, it's going to bring up much fruit. So this seed was the burden of the entire Old Testament scriptures. The whole focus of the Old Testament scriptures is to help people recognize and understand when this seed came. That's the point of every single prophecy. And Jesus says, all these scriptures, they are they which testify what? Of me, they're pointing to him. The culminating event of the entire Old Testament is the first coming of Christ. Yes, there are prophecies about second coming and other events, but the most important central theme is this coming of Christ. That's why Paul says, listen, this is the gospel that was preached to Abraham, this coming of the seed. In thee shall all nations be blessed. The reason why this was so important, because this seed and the coming of the seed will accomplish certain things that were absolutely necessary for the salvation of mankind. I want to look at a few of those as well. In Isaiah 53, I think we all are familiar with this prophecy. I want to highlight a few points here, verse 10 and 11. It says, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Of course, this is referring to the servant who's called the branch. I think we all know this is a prophecy about Christ, the seed. As it pleased the Lord to bruise him, he hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. You know, when Isaiah wrote that, he was looking forward to the time when there will be an offering for sin. You know what that means? When Isaiah wrote it at that time, there was no offering for sin because it was when Christ came that the Lord would make his soul an offering for sin. Not only that, but as a result of it, he will see his seed. In other words, Christ is going to produce seed after his kind as a result of him coming and dying. And unless he comes and dies, he would abide alone. Only through death would he produce seed after his kind. And when he sees that seed, and it says he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper <clears throat> in his hand. And verse 11, it says, He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Isaiah was looking forward to the fulfillment of this prophecy. When that servant would come, when that seed would come and justify many, when he would bear our iniquities and bring about this wonderful plan of salvation. Now this principle of he shall see his seed, I want us to keep this in mind because God laid out this principle in creation. Everything that God made produces offspring after its kind, right? And the ultimate uh, principle is, is realized when we look at the father, the God of the universe, when he, when he had a son, when he begat a son, his son was also after his kind, right? And this is why we believe Christ, of course, is, is divine, and there's no way to, to deny that. Not only did Isaiah prophesy about it, every other prophet. Let's look at another one in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. 
We're familiar with this one, but it pinpoints some of the achievements that this seed would accomplish. 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. To finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Daniel looked forward to the time when these things would happen. You realize when Daniel wrote what he did, all these things had not taken place yet because the seed had not yet come. And when he would come, he would accomplish these wonderful, incredible achievements, finishing transgression. That wasn't done yet. Making an end of sins and making reconciliation for iniquity. That wasn't done yet. Daniel was looking forward to a time when everlasting righteousness would be brought in. Something that the seed would accomplish and finally anoint the most holy. And this is why I want to emphasize and point to, you know, uh, try and get the picture in our minds of what it must have been like for the people in the Old Testament to look forward to the time when all these things would come about. That's why the coming of the seed, brothers and sisters, is the most important event in the entire history of the universe. You realize that? The coming of Christ as a man and what he achieved and accomplished on earth is the most important event in the universe. There is no other event that can rival that. You might say we're, we're Adventists, the second coming. There would be no second coming if Christ hadn't come and defeated Satan. And so this is the burden. So I want to illustrate how the, this, this hope from one generation to the next was building during the Old Testament time, looking forward with great anticipation to this coming of the seed. And of course, this coming of the seed was to happen in the fullness of time. Let's see how Peter brings that out in Acts 3, 24 to 26. Peter preaching, and there is the Jewish leaders there who had killed Christ. He says, yeah, and all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after, as many as have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days. Ye are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, and in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. Unto you first, God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. Peter pinpoints the most, he summarizes, he says, listen, this is what all the prophets, this is the burden of all the prophets and the covenant. Here it is, this promise that God gave to Abraham that in your seed all nations will be blessed. And saying, now God has fulfilled this promise to you. Now I want to pinpoint something here so we don't misunderstand. In verse 26 when it says, unto you first, God having raised up his son. This is not the resurrection. Okay, this is the incarnation. God raised up a savior. This is when Christ was born. This is the fulfillment of this promised seed that would come. He's telling them, essentially, the whole burden of the Old Testament prophecies has been fulfilled and you missed it. God sent his son to bless you and to turn everyone away from your iniquities. That's what Daniel had prophesied about. Peter was saying, it is here. And of course, Paul refers to the very same event in Galatians 3.19 when he talks about the seed. Again, he says, wherefore, then serveth the law. It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come. Here it is again. These New Testament prophets are focusing. Listen, we've got the reality of what was promised then. Till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. 
Now, of course, the context of what Paul talks about here shows that when this seed came, it brought about a fulfillment of all these prophecies that were given in the Old Testament. Just a few verses later, we're in verse 19 here. Verse 22 to 25, he expands on the same concept. He says, But the scripture has concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterward be revealed. He's clearly talking about a before and after situation here, isn't he? A time before faith was revealed and a time when the faith of Jesus Christ would be revealed. Verse 24, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under schoolmaster. So here's the question. When did faith come? Or is it still coming? Whose faith is it, according to these verses? It's the faith of Jesus Christ. So this faith comes when who comes? Jesus Christ comes. When the seed comes, brothers and sisters, the coming of the seed brought this faith. And this is what Isaiah is referring to when he says, By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. Here Paul says that we might be justified by faith. This is the coming of the seed. The glorious coming of the seed. The hope of all the prophets and all the people that lived in the Old Testament. Now, uh, this verse, as far as the seed is concerned, some people misunderstand the coming of the seed that Paul talks about in, uh, in verse 19. And uh, they misunderstand the thing. It refers to the second coming. Now, this cannot be, brothers and sisters. You know why? If the seed has not yet come, then faith has not yet come. Isn't that right? And in the book of Hebrews, the Bible tells us that Jesus is what? The author and finisher of our faith. Is that something still future? He's already finished it. Why? Because he has come, he has died. That's the coming of the seed. Now, interesting enough, recently I came across this, this statement from Spirit Prophecy that confirms the context of Paul. Now, it's very clear from, from Paul, but it's interesting that in Spirit Prophecy, sometimes, like I said yesterday, some people like the verse when it's confirmed with a statement. So here's an interesting statement that goes with this particular verse. It says, When our first parents transgressed the holy law of God, the Lord promised that the seed of the woman should bruise the serpent's head. The serpent was to bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, but he was to have no power to touch the head. Humanity was lost, and Christ appeared as the world's redeemer, the seed to whom the promises were made. He died to redeem mankind. Amen. That's exactly what Paul was saying. The seed that should come to whom the promise was made. So it's very clear. Mrs. White understood the context of Paul's argument. And you know, we, we lose that when we misunderstand what he is referring to there. Now, of course, as a result of that, remember Isaiah said, he shall see his seed and prolong his days. As a result of the coming of the seed and the death of the seed, then he can see other seeds or offspring or uh, produce or fruit. All these ideas, all these concepts, all these terms signify something of great significance to us, brothers and sisters. And of course, in Galatians 3, 9, uh, 29, Paul says it this way. If you be Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now you are a seed as well. Why? 
because that seed came and died. If he had not died, he would have remained alone. That's what he told his disciples. We are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. That's why Jesus said just before he died, he told his disciples, listen, you know, I'm going to go and die. And they didn't believe him. He says after that, because I live, what? You shall live also. That's what he was talking about. When I die, then you also can be part of the harvest. Because when I come back to life, it's not just going to be me. There's going to be a great big harvest or fruit, a result of his glorious death. And notice the practical result here for us. 1 John 3, 9. Whosoever is born of God does not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. What's this seed? Whose seed is it? It is Christ. Christ now can abide in us, and abiding in us, he deals with this problem of sin. This is the only remedy for sin. Amen. The only one. You don't have, if you try anything else, if you don't have the seed, you know, good luck. You're not going to make it. Fighting with sin. He's the only one that defeated sin. And so this coming of the seed is of great significance, practical significance for us, brothers and sisters. This is the whole point of John. John is basically saying, listen, because of what happened, all these people in the Old Testament were looking forward to in the time when the seed would come. Now we have the seed come, and this seed can remain in us. And when it remains in us, it produces fruit after its kind. That's what we refer to, in other words, as righteousness by faith. Here is some of the logistical elements of how this came about. Some of the science, the biblical science of salvation. Of course, I think uh, one of the most famous verses that we quote when we talk about the seed being in us or Christ being in us is on in Colossians, right? Christ in you, the hope of glory in Colossians 1, 27. It says, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That is because, that is the great achievement and the result of the coming of the seed. But the previous verse gives us a very interesting insight. We don't usually quote the previous verse, but it's very important. Verse 26, Paul says, even the mystery which has been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints. So this Christ in you, the hope of glory, is referred to as a mystery that was what? Hidden from ages and from generations. Now I want to ask you a question. Why was it hidden? Is it because God says, look, I've got a secret here and I won't tell anyone about it. We don't want to tell them yet. Why was it hidden? Because the seed had not yet come. When was it revealed? When the seed did come and die and produce seed after his kind. You understand? That's why it says, listen, what we have now, Paul is essentially saying, this thing that was not yet revealed or manifested yet, that was promised, that was longed for, that was anticipated for ages upon ages, now for us it is manifested. And here it is, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Brothers and sisters, we are living in the realization of 4,000 years of prophecies and promises, and mankind looking and earnestly longing for this fulfillment that we have right now. Do we realize what we have? I put it to you that we don't have a clue. 
Because if we did, brothers and sisters, this world would be upside down. We don't. We often think, oh yeah, maybe one day, someday, not today. Maybe one day, someday, not today. We've become futurists. But the fact is, brothers and sisters, Christ has come 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago. Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is why the coming of Christ, like I said, is the great marker in time. Everything is, is, is uh, calculated based on the cross, before and after, even dating, right? You know, AD and BC. Everything is hinged on that. So important is this event. The reason why I'm saying that, I want to repeat it again. Even the God of the universe is going to shift his throne to the very spot where that event took place forever to honor that. That's an eternal memorial that this event here, the coming of the seed and his battle with Satan and his death and his resurrection is by far the most significant event in the history of the universe. There is nothing else that's going to happen in the billions and billions of eternity in the future that will ever match that. Do you realize that? Amen. Ever. And the, the most direct recipients of the benefit of this event is you and me. Everyone else in the universe by extension because that event uh, secures the whole universe. But the first in line to benefit is you and me. Not only that, but we are now seed after his kind. Brothers and sisters, if this really sinks into our mind, if we really comprehend what this means, I honestly believe we will have a totally different experience. And the world will see something that they've never seen before. That's why the coming of the seed is the gospel that was preached to Abraham and that is preached to us and that we have now as a living reality. I want to take that to another level and bring it into focus for us in the last days. In looking at Christ as the seed, the Bible also gives us another description of him in 1 Corinthians 15, 20. It says, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. Christ here is referred to as first fruits. Again, the same type of uh, agriculture terminology, okay? Same type of uh, language like seed and corn and all that and wheat. He's become the first fruits of them that slept. Who are them that slept? All the believers that sleep in Christ. He is now, by his coming and by his resurrection in particular, he has become this first fruits. And if we illustrate that, Christ is the first fruits, and them that slept would be the harvest. Now, this is a very important principle in the scriptures, the principle of first fruits and harvest. I want to focus on that a little bit because uh, sometimes in discussing things with people, and I've had this discussion, people will tell me, oh, look, you know, the Bible talks about first fruits, and then there is the second fruits, and so on. Uh, there is no such thing in the Bible as second fruits, okay? The Bible only talks about first fruits and harvest. First fruits and harvest, always. And those two make up the entire yield, so to speak. First fruits and harvest. And here it tells us that Christ is this first fruits of this glorious harvest. Them that slept. Not only there, but a couple of verses later, he says essentially the same thing. But every man in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, afterward they that are Christ, at his coming. Who is this group of people? Those that are resurrected at his second coming. Let's keep that, because a couple of verses later, he just said those that slept, right? 
We've got to keep the, the context in mind. So Christ is the first fruits, and when he comes, he's going to gather a great harvest, the harvest. And that harvest is gathered from the grave. Right? You're getting some blank looks here. Remember in Revelation, when Christ comes a second time, he comes with a sickle in his hand, right? Okay, let's read the verse, because uh, actually, let's read the verse, then go back to this one. Revelation 14. Verse 14, 16, I looked and behold a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So who does he reap? Them that are sleeping, correct? And so Christ is the first fruits of them that slept. Christ is the first fruits, and then those that are his at his coming. These things happen. In other words, it's saying the harvest happens at the second coming of Christ. That's why Christ comes with a sickle representing harvest or a reaper. Thank you. Christ is the first fruits of the harvest. And this harvest could only happen if the seed, Christ, came and died. Otherwise, he abides alone. In other words, all these believers in the Old Testament, even on their deathbed, their hope of the resurrection was still centered on the time when the seed would come. Even to the point of death, they looked forward to the fulfillment of that promise. God blessed their faith, and God rewarded their faith immensely. I want to go back to this verse, because this verse gives us a couple of principles here. Uh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, Mark 4.29. Mark 4.29 tells us, Jesus here speaking, but when the fruit is brought forth, immediately he putteth in the sickle because the harvest is come. This is why we're saying in the scriptures there's only fruit and harvest. First fruits and harvest. There's no second fruits or third fruits or anything like that. It's just first fruits and harvest. And the relationship between the fruit and the harvest is as soon as one is ripe, it immediately, immediately indicates that the harvest is ripe. And this is why the angel says to Christ, thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the harvest of the earth is what? Ripe. The harvest is ripe. I want to focus on that a little bit, that, Christ, uh, that the harvest is ripe. What ripens the harvest? That's a fair question, right? It says, the angel essentially says, okay, now you can gather the harvest because now it is ripe. So what brings the harvest to ripening? We just read the verse earlier. When the fruit is ripe, the harvest is ripe. This relationship is very significant. So it help us understand something. And I want us to think about that. Very, very important connection. There is another group in the last days that are called first fruits, right? What group is that? 144,000. Here it is. And you know, when say 144,000 people sometimes wake up, oh yeah, now this topic is getting interesting. 144,000. We, we like to talk about these end time things, but there's an important connection we must keep in mind. 144,000 are called that in Revelation 14.4. These are they which, are, which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. 144,000 are called the first fruits. They occupy a position that is very similar to Christ. Christ is called first fruits, and they are called first fruits. And the experience and the position of Christ is representative of this particular group of people in the last days, the first fruits. 
And this is connected with the gathering in of the harvest. Not only that, the ripening of the harvest that allows it to be gathered. You with me? What does that mean? <clears throat> Before you can have a ripe harvest, the first fruits must be ripe first. Correct? Because we just read the verse. When the fruit is ripe, then immediately he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. So long as the fruit or the first fruit is not ripe, the harvest is not ripe. So when we look at the 144,000 as the first fruits, we need to ask ourselves a question. What brings this group to a ripe condition? Because when they are ripe, the harvest is ripe. Silence. What brings this group to a ripening condition? What ripens the first fruits, 144,000? Well, let's have a look. Well, the rain, okay, that's, that's a good point, the rain. But the rain is not enough. Let's read in Revelation 15, 2. <clears throat> and I saw as it were a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast, and over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass having the harps of God. This is the same group, 144,000. They have harps. They sing the song of Moses and the Lamb. They reach and they achieve the greatest victory against the greatest trial that the devil throws at them. They go through this time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. And going through that time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation brings them up to a level of ripening. They meet the worst that Satan has to, give, uh, to throw at them, right? Not only that, but they do this while there is no longer a mediator in the sanctuary, correct? Remember that from Great Controversy? That brings them up to a point of ripening. Doesn't God say, you know, many will be purified and tried and made white? It is in the furnace of great trial and affliction that the greatest victory is achieved. And the greatest time of furnace or the greatest time of trouble that's going to come upon this world is the one that's talked about in Daniel 12, the time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. In other words, we're talking now here about the time of the seven last plagues, right? That's a time of trouble such as never was. God's people, 144,000, are going to go through that time. And they're going to go through that time and they're going to reach a victory that has never been achieved before. Evidenced by the fact that they have this seal of the living God. We talked about that yesterday. You with me so far? Haven't lost anyone? Okay, good. Notice the connection here again in uh, Romans 11, verse 16. For if the first fruits be holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. What happens to the fruit or the first fruit affects the lump or the rest of everything else. And the lump here would represent the harvest. What happens to the first fruits affects the harvest. If the first fruits remain unholy, the harvest is not yet ripe. It cannot be gathered, it cannot be collected. But if the first fruits are holy and ripe, then the harvest is holy and can be gathered because it is ripe. Very significant connection here. A very important picture that the Bible paints for us time and again, time and again. That's why the description of the uh, 144,000, you know, at the end of when Probation closes, Christ uh, says, you know, he that is holy, let him be what? Holy 
still. It describes them as being without guile in their mouths. They are faultless before the throne of God. That's a description that they reach a certain level that then allows God to accomplish something. And the final seal and evidence that they reach this maturity or they reach this point of ripening is when God, the Father himself, recognizes it by saying from his throne in heaven, it is done. You remember when God the Father says that? At what point? At the beginning of the seventh plague, right? We talked about some of this stuff last year. Maybe we should do a quiz about what we talked about last year. <laughs> you with me? This is when the plagues are going, right? And, and the God's people are under intense fire and trial and mental anguish and their faith grasped on. And the servant of the Lord tells us that their, uh, their final earthliness is being cleansed away. And they come to a point where they totally are like Christ was in the garden. They rely on God fully. And then God says, it is done. And then the tables are turned. And when he says, it is done, that means this is the graduation ceremony for this group of people. In other words, he is saying they are ripe. And he tells his son, son, put on your kingly robes. Time to go and collect the harvest. Because now the harvest is ripe. You with me? See the connection? When the first fruits are ripe, the harvest is ripe. But that's what all creation is waiting for. In Romans 8, it says, for the earnest expectation of all of creation is waiting for something. What's it waiting for? The manifestation of the sons of God. At this point, this will be the ultimate manifestation of the sons of God, not only for this world, but for the whole universe. And God will indicate that by saying it is done and by glorifying them at this point. Anyway, we won't go into too much details. And so this is the refining of the 144,000. So this harvest of the 144,000, well, who is it? It's those that are sleeping, and it's referred to in Revelation chapter 7, directly after it uh, tells us about the 144,000, Revelation 7, 9, and 10. And after this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb. That's the harvest. It's also called the great Multitude. Now, I know there's all kinds of ideas and theories about the great multitude and the harvest and who they are and who they're not. And let's explore what the scripture says here, because if we keep the type in mind, it's actually very easy to understand. There's, there's no need to, to get confused about it. In the seventh chapter of Revelation, only two groups are mentioned. The first few verses deal with 144,000. The last few verses deal with the great multitude. And that's it. You know why? Because that is the entire harvest. First fruits and harvest. 144,000 are first fruits. Great multitude is harvest. Now, Revelation chapter 7 answers a question that is asked in the previous chapter at the very end, where it says, When Christ is coming, and who shall be able to? To stand. Only the entire harvest will be able to stand before God in his presence. Now, I want to see. Uh, a few more aspects as far as this is concerned, because like I said, there's, there's a number of different ideas, which is fine. They can uh, generate some good discussions among us, so long as we don't uh, part ways over them, right? So it's good to discuss these things. And if you see things differently, I'll be more than happy to talk to you after. There's no, there's no problem with that at all. You know, we can discuss things and share. Uh, but I want to propose to you some scenarios, because there's one, one popular uh, belief is 
that the great multitude are the converts of the preaching of the 144,000 in the last days. You heard about that? You familiar with that? Maybe you believe that. I don't know. If you are, I'm not trying to offend you, but I want to examine this in great detail. The harvest is the key to that. Because people say, look, in the last days, the, the gospel is going to go out with a bang. And this sounds like a pretty good bang to go out with. A great multitude that no man could number, converts from every nation, kindred, and tongue, and people. Now, I want to tell you something. There is no doubt that some of the converts in the last days are going to be part of this great multitude. But by far, the great bulk of this great multitude is already in the grave. It's the harvest waiting to be gathered. Now, some of these converts in the last days, you realize that they might not receive the seal of God, right? Okay. All right. Okay, let's, let's, let's back up a bit, slow down a little bit. The, the 144,000 are sealed with the seal of the living God, right? Okay, they, they have received the letter in, they go out and preach. Many of these people are converted. They might not all necessarily receive the seal of the living God. You know that? Let me clarify something first. The seal of the living God is not the basis of salvation. Right? There are people who will not receive the seal of the living God who will be saved. Correct? The seal of the living God is for this group of people called the first fruits or the 144,000. The great multitude, they don't receive the seal of the living God, but they're saved. So we're not dealing here with who's going to be saved or who's going to be lost. We're dealing with a group of people who are either in the first fruits, this, this, uh, who go through this experience and they succeed, or in the great multitude. Receiving the seal of the living God is what preserves this first fruits to enable them to succeed through this time of trouble such as never was. Not everybody's going to go through this experience. Okay, so because some, some, there's all kinds of ideas. I'm not going to explore every single one of them. I'm just going to throw out some scenarios here to think about. So there is a very likely scenario where someone might be converted who might not learn all the present truth, and God says he will lay them in the grave to save them because they will not be able to endure to go through this time of trouble, right? So what happens to them? They are gathered with the harvest, with the great multitude. And so there's no doubt some people are converted in the last days are going to be part of this, but the great bulk and majority are already in the grave. And the key to understanding this properly is when we understand the first fruits and the harvest. <clears throat> when does the harvest take place? Jesus said it, Matthew 13, 39. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. Speaking about that parable, remember? The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are who? The angels. Not the 144,000, right? The reapers are the angels. When do the angels reap? In the morning of the resurrection. When, you, when people come out of the graves and they go and they gather them together and they unite them to meet the Lord in the air, right? And so the reapers are not the 144,000, not people. The harvest is gathered by the Lord of the harvest and his reapers are the angels. The sickle that he holds in his hand is representative of that. He is the Lord of the harvest and he gathers this great harvest that comes about as a result of the ripening of the first fruits, no doubt. That's what we just saw. And so, Christ is the first fruits. 144 are the first fruits. They are representative of the same harvest. There's no two harvests in the scriptures, okay? Remember, Christ was the first fruits of them that slept. And they that slept, he will gather at his coming. Remember that? The 144,000 are the first fruits of the same harvest. It's referred to as the great multitude who will come from the grave. It's those that slept, making up one complete unit. I want to look at that a little closer because 
this link between the 144,000 and the, the harvest is important. I want to I give you some, uh, something else to think about here. What event did we say brings the 144,000 to ripening? What was that? Tribulation. Tribulation, going through this trial. And this trial happens when? After probation closes, correct? In other words, you cannot have a harvest before probation. Think about it. If the 144,000 go out and convert this great multitude, which is the harvest, all this conversion process happens when? Before probation. Is anyone converted after probation? Or is every case decided? There's no more changing sides after probation. There's no more conversions. If any conversions are going to happen, it has to be before. But before, the 144,000 are not ripe yet. So you cannot have a harvest. You with me? The harvest is after. At the very end, when Christ comes the second time, that's when he gathers his harvest. Well after probation has closed. Another point, important point to keep in mind. <clears throat> now, like I said yesterday, and this is something that's very common for us as Adventists, and hopefully we'll go quickly through this last few points. Someone say, hold on, brother, Sister White says. This all sounds good and well, brother, but Sister White says, right? And we're going to look at what Sister White says, because she actually confirms that very clearly. There, is, there really does not need to be so much confusion over this issue. This is at the ascension of Christ after 40 days, where he goes back to heaven. And last chapter of Zara of Ages, he's entering in through the city. It says, he, Christ, waves them back. Not yet. He cannot now receive the coronet of glory and the royal robe. He enters into the presence of his father. He points to his wounded head, his pierced side, marred feet. He lifts his hands, bearing the prince of nails. He points to the tokens of his triumph. This is the people who were raised with him. Okay? He presents to God the wave sheaf, those raised with him, as representatives of that great multitude who shall come forth from the grave at his second coming. Now, that's a clear statement, right? The great multitude is those who will come from the grave at his second coming. That's the harvest. And as, as a sample of that harvest, he took some people with him from the grave and took them to heaven as representatives of that. And she actually uh, says that he presents the wave sheaf or the first fruits. In other words, if we illustrate this, when Christ rose, he took with him a sample of that harvest. That sample is referred to as first fruits or wave sheaf. And that harvest will be gathered from the grave, this great multitude which will be gathered from the grave. That's not the only one. There's a few. Three, uh, oh, too fast. Spirit Prophecy, Volume 3. He is seated by the side of his Father on his throne. The Savior presents the captives he has rescued from the bonds of death at the price of his own life. His hands place immortal crowns upon their brows, for they are the representatives, the samples of those who shall be redeemed by the blood of Christ from all nations, tongues, and people. That's Revelation 7 language. And come forth from the dead when he shall call the just from the graves at his second coming. Harvest time. That's a glorious harvest, brothers and sisters, that will come because of what Christ will accomplish. Here's another one, Zarb Ages 6, 2, 3. Only by yielding up his life could he impart life to humanity. Only by falling into the ground to die could he become the seed of that vast harvest. The great multitude that out of every nation and kindred and tongue and people are redeemed to, to God. That comes about as a result of his death. He's the seed that dies that produces this bountiful harvest. And the gathering time is when he comes a second time. That's going to be... A glorious, glorious event. 
to think that the 144,000 go out and convert you know, this, this great multitude presents a number of problems because when Christ, before Christ comes, there's only one group of people that are alive on the earth. What group is that as far as the saints are concerned? What group is that? 144,000. They're the only ones who are alive. There's no one else alive. Whatever converts they had, either they received the seal and are therefore part of the 144,000, or they didn't and they died and they're part of the great multitude to be gathered with the rest of the harvest. Let's read a couple of statements to that effect just to make sure that we're on the right track. Testimonies, Volume 1. Soon we heard the voice of God like many waters, which gave us the day and hour of Jesus' coming. This is God the Father. When He speaks, it is done, and then He pronounces the day and uh, coming, uh, the day and hour of Christ's coming. The living saints, 144,000 in number, knew and understood the voice, while the wicked thought it was thunder and an earthquake. When God spake the time, He poured on us the Holy Ghost, and our faces began to light up and shine with the glory of God, as Moses did when He came down from Mount Sinai. So when God speaks, who are there to listen and understand? 144,000. There's no one else as far as the righteous are concerned. The wicked, they don't have a clue what's going on. And when God speaks that voice, it says, He pours the Holy Spirit, and the saints are glorified, literally. Their faces light up. This is ripe. You are now ripe. 144,000. The living saints are ripe. And it's because of that, then the harvest can come about. Here's another one. And this is just a little bit later in time. The earth mightily shook as the voice of the Son of God called forth the sleeping saints. What event is this now? Second coming. When Christ comes on the clouds, He calls the, the dead. They responded to the call and came forth clothed with glorious immortality, crying victory, victory over death and the grave. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Then the living saints and the risen ones raised their voices in a long transporting shout of victory. Who are the living saints? 144,000. Who are the risen ones? The harvest or the great multitude? And now all together are finally united. Christ comes and gathers them to take them home. It's fairly simple, right? Not that hard? Okay, makes sense? It's easy when we see it in the, in, the, in the picture that God gave us with the first fruits and the harvest. It's, very, it's actually very, very easy. Uh, here it is again. There. Then there was a mighty earthquake. The graves opened and the dead came up clothed with immortality. 144,000 shouted, Hallelujah! As they recognized their friends who had been torn from them by death. And in the same moment, we were changed and caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. So some people in 144,000 are going to recognize people in the great multitude. So they must have lived at the same time and were separated by death. This is why I was saying there is a scenario where some people might uh, come to, to the truth and not necessarily receive fully the seal of the living God. They might die. And they will be re reunited when Christ gathers the harvest. Now, there is another uh, school of thought that, and you might have come across this one, that, that says that uh, the 144,000 and the great multitude are really one and the same group. You heard about that? Again, maybe you believe that, I don't know. But I have heard about that. That basically, the 144,000 is just a symbolic number that is talking about the same group. It's the same thing. It's all of the saved. All the redeemed are called 144,000, or they're also called the great multitude. Now, it's just a very big number. Yes, and the figure 144,000 is just a symbolic figure. Now, uh, this idea may sound good and sound uh, convincing. I, I don't think it is accurate or true for a number of reasons. Already we saw that the most important reason is 
there is always in scriptures a first fruit and a harvest, and the, the two are not the same. First fruits and harvest. One group is the first fruits, the other group is the harvest. One group is numbered, the other group cannot be numbered. One group is from Israel, the other group is from every nation, kindred, and tongue, and people. One group is sealed, as we said, with the seal of the living God. One group sees their friends in the other group whom they recognize, who were separated by death. One group is alive and goes through this time of trouble such as never was. The other group does not. And finally, uh, another point. Remember Mrs. White's first vision? And, and she's taken to heaven and, and they come and they're walking through the fields and it's all nice. And, and they come to the temple, right? And then Christ, she says, he lifts his hand and he says, only the 144,000 can enter here. Now Christ wasn't saying only everyone can enter here. Okay, he said only 144,000. So there is a distinction there. There is an important distinction. And, and that doesn't mean that, you know, one group is going to uh, be on a lower level of the sea of glass and the other group is on a higher level. Everybody's going to stand equally on the same sea of glass. The whole entire yield. All the fruit of the seed of Christ. And all of that is composed of the first fruits and the harvest. As a matter of fact, only the 144,000 get to hear God's voice, God the Father's voice when he speaks. And uh, when he speaks, he says a few interesting things. Here's another one that talks about that. And as God spake the day and hour of Jesus coming and delivered the everlasting covenant to his people, he spake one sentence and then paused while the words were rolling through the earth. The Israel of God stood with their eyes fixed upwards. So who's the Israel of God here? 144,000. Listening to the words as they came from the mouth of Jehovah and rolled through the earth like peals of loudest thunder. It was awfully solemn. At the end of every sentence, the saints shouted, Glory, hallelujah. Their countenances were lighted with the glory of God, and they shone with the glory as Moses' face did when he came down from Sinai. The wicked could not look upon them for the glory. And when the never-ending blessing was pronounced on those who had honored God in keeping his Sabbath holy, there was a mighty shout of victory over the beast and over his image. That's why we're talking about the same group. That's what Revelation 15 talked about. Victory over the beast and his image and the number of his name. Now, it's interesting here, this uh, point where it says he delivered to them the everlasting covenant. Some people misunderstood this. Uh, there's two aspects to, to delivered here. And some people say, you know, God is now delivering the everlasting covenant. This is when this starts. Deliver here does not mean what uh, they did to our bags when we lost them and they delivered them. They brought them to us. Deliver here means to speak, as in a speech. You know, when you get up and you deliver a speech. In other words, God is declaring that which brought them to that point, it's the everlasting covenant. And he repeats it and confirms it with his voice out of heaven. They would not get to that point except through the everlasting covenant, which they believed and which they experienced and which brought them to that point. And God confirms that in this graduation ceremony, so to speak. You with me? So there's no need to misunderstand that either. Now, I want to... Uh, Close with this, this particular aspect here. Our time's almost up, so we'll close with this. When we look at the seed and the fruit and the harvest, I hope you can see the connection now between those three. And it is a glorious connection. When we look at the seed and the fruit and the harvest, I want to tell you something. It was absolutely impossible to have the 144,000 or the great multitude before the cross. The level that the 144,000 come up to and the point that they achieve was totally impossible before the cross. You realize that? Now, why is that? 
because the seed was not yet come. And if the seed had not yet come, it cannot produce fruit. Only because the seed came do we have the possibility of fruit being produced. And when the fruit is produced and is ripe, only then can you gather the harvest. Everything, brothers and sisters, in this is dependent on that glorious seed. Praise God. Do we realize what we have? Jesus said it once. He said to his disciples, you know what? There's many righteous men and prophets and kings who wished to see the things that you see and to hear the things that you hear. That summarizes for me the, the entire longing of the whole Old Testament period. These people were longing to see and experience what would happen when the seed would come. Brothers and sisters, we have that already. We have that already. It's been accomplished for us. We're living on this side, praise God. Sometimes we wish we were living on the other side, right? That's when all the miracles happen and pillar of cloud and sea dividing up and walls of stone tumbling. We think, boy, if I lived in that time, great evidences for my faith. I wouldn't be like these Israelites. We're living at a time, brothers and sisters, when the seed has come. The glorious seed has come. That's why this beautiful verse in Hebrews 11, it says, and these all, speaking about all these people in the Old Testament, and these all having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. We're looking at this better thing that God provided for us. Something that was not even possible before the cross. Do we realize what we have? I really don't think we do. Maybe I've given you a little bit of a picture. Maybe I've stirred your thinking a little bit so that the Lord can open our eyes and to help us realize and appreciate what we have in Christ now as a result of what he has accomplished. I want to close with this quote. This is my last quote. And I think it sums up everything we talked about in one place, which, which I like. So it's a good summary. In Spirit Prophecy, Volume 3, here's what it says. If he, Christ, should draw back from the sacrifice of his life, he would abide alone, like the kernel of wheat that did not die. But if he should give up his life, he would, like the kernel of wheat that fell into the ground, rise again as the first fruits of the great harvest. And he, the life giver, would call the dead that were united with him by faith from the graves, and there will be a glorious harvest of ripe grain for the heavenly garner. This is only possible because of what Christ has accomplished. Brothers and sisters, we now have this better thing. Has it been accomplished for us in vain? That is the question. That it has been accomplished for you in vain. Christ went to great lengths. We... That's such an understatement. Christ went to indescribable lengths that we will never comprehend through the ceaseless ages of eternity in the future. We do not fully understand what he went through in order to give us what we have now. Are we squandering it through our faithlessness? You, you understand what I'm talking about? Don't you know, we use these statements, the cost of our salvation is only known to the Father and the Son. You know that statement? You know what that tells you? There is something about what Christ did in becoming a, a human being and what he accomplished that you and I will never comprehend. It will take us eternity and we won't get it. It will take us glorified minds and we won't get it. 
And we have that right now. That's not future. We have that right now. Paul says, they without us should not be made perfect because God has prepared this better thing for us. I really want to challenge you, brothers and sisters. What are we doing with the seed? Are we wasting the seed? Are we letting the seed die? Or are we allowing the seed to see his seed in us and rejoice? Are we allowing him to see the travail of his soul and be satisfied? You know that's what satisfies Christ? It's when he sees that his effort, his great effort, has produced some result somewhere in someone. And we're the ones who profess to be his people. We're the ones who profess to be uh, present truth believers. It says, here we are. Does he see fruit in us? Fruit that will eventually lead to us being in that group, being ripe, and allowing him to gather the harvest. That's the challenge I want to challenge you with. And I want to challenge you to pray and say, Lord, open my eyes so that I can see Jesus as I should. In a fresh new light, like he would want to be seen. Because we're dull of vision, right? Our eyes are blinded. So that what we see can transform us and that we can be changed by beholding. If this is your desire, if this is your prayer, I want you to put your hand up. If you were blessed by this message, remember to subscribe and share it with others. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through His Son, Jesus.